a lot of these late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. And this week on Cinemodities, we are starting a brand new series. What? What? It, n- movies that never were Vember? Is that what we called it last time? Don't uh, say it too many times. A demon will appear. Yeah, so I was thinking about um, that fact. That we might accidentally conjure a demon while we're recording. And that's just going to be a pain to edit afterwards, right? Like, I don't think the the demon's going to have a lot of good things to say about these movies. Who knows? But to avoid that problem, another name I was thinking of is, Zach, what do you think about Nope-vember? So it's like, because like it. you, you know the people, whenever we do anything on Cinemonities, one of the first things people tweet us is, does this movie exist? And for the first time, we're going to say nope, because we are doing movies that were never made. So what do you think about that? Nope, Vember, Zach. I like that. Nope, okay. Vember. Okay, so we got movies that were ne- never, ve- were never Vember. I'm glad, Shh, that's I'm twice glad I now. Messed it up. Well, I messed it up that time. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> um, and Nope, Vember. Okay, right on. Well, the first movie we're talking about in November is... Actually, I I guess I have a question before we... I'm building the suspense here, Zach. Before we get into it, we should set the ground rules for November, right? Are we talking about the movies that didn't get made, or are we talking about the documentaries about those movies? Or both? What do you think? How did you picture November, Zach? As I pictured November, or at least maybe what the demon was telling me to think, was <laughs> November was, we're looking at the movies that never were, in that these are movies that don't exist. One of them kind of exists, but it's not really in any capacity I would imagine the filmmakers would want us to view it in, or it's not ideal circumstances. But essentially, these documentaries we'll be talking about are giving us a portal into what these movies could have been. Gotcha. So my goal is to be saying, if this movie actually existed in the way that the filmmakers talk about it, would it be a cinemodity? So it's ah. going to require a little, a little imagination on our part to be like, so we're going to be filling in a way, we're going to be the filmmakers along with the people in these documentaries because they can only describe the movie so much in about 90 minutes or two hours. Gotcha. So we're going to have to kind of paint in the background scenery a little bit. Okay, okay, I like that. I'm glad we're taking that stance. I think that's the more interesting stance, because if we were talking about the solely the documentaries, which we're going to have to discuss a little bit, um, I would probably have largely different comments. And we'll get to that as we talk about our first movie that never was, which is Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune. So would you say, as the documentary goes on to say i think to great extent would you say this is the most well-known film that never got made oh definitely okay okay i my background with jodorowsky i think rob and i's both introduction to him was with a documentary called i think it was what midnight madness Mm -hmm. back during the Eraserhead era of of late (laughs) high school where there was this documentary, I think it was a Showtime documentary, and they talk about all different like midnight movies, again, Eraserhead, 
uh, Rocky Horror, El Topo, Jodorowsky's really the, the film he's most known for. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that was my introduction to Jodorowsky. And I didn't know, I, I saw he was just a crazy man. It's like, oh, like, anytime you see him interviewed, we'll insert some clips here. We went to see Trumbull, but he gives himself so big importance. We was speaking, he answered 40 times the telephone. 40 times. He was speaking with so big vanity of himself. He was a big technician, but for me was not a spiritual person. He had nothing to do in the creation of a, of a film who was a prophet. He will make a technical film. No? In that time, I was uh, seducing Dali because I wanted Dali as the mad emperor of the galaxy. From this, this supposed failure come a lot, a lot of creation. Mm. In the life, sin come, you say yes. Sin go away, you say yes. We don't do it, yes. That is, yes, we don't do it. And then so what? And then so what? Dune is in the world like a dream, but dream changed the world also. I think he's mesmerizing to listen to okay. because he's he's just talking a mile a minute. Yeah, it's like okay, he made this. He makes these weird movies. It's like like surrealist is not a strong enough word for it. Mm-hmm. And yet, like over time, it was. I think it was the summer of 2012. I got a book that I actually dug out like in the last hour. It's called The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies That Were Never Made. Oh, it basically okay. documents a bunch of, like, I think it was, I don't know when it was published. It was published uh, 2001, and I think it got another edition in 2008. But this was during the summer of 2012. I got this book. It basically has a nice little list of, and gives, like, maybe 10, 15 pages on each of these projects of films that never were. Mm-hmm. And just because I think this is a book that Rob would be interested by, because it documents things like all the different iterations of Watchmen, Ooh. Like Terry Gilliam's Watchmen, yeah, or David. Interesting stuff. Yeah, David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket in one <laughs> saliva bubble. I haven't read this book in a while, so a lot of this is it's just in this news. May, um, oddly enough, the Island of Doctor Moreau. Ooh, it documents that as well. The death of Superman lives. Basically, a lot of things. The fact that like when like Steven Spielberg wanted to make another like a different like alien invasion movie. And it wasn't E.T., things like that. And one of the things listed in this was Jodorowsky's Dune, along with different versions of it. They, they also, because really, Jodorowsky's Dune is the most well-known version, mm-hmm. I think, beyond the David Lynch film. Yes. I, I think in film circles, if you talk to people and you start talking about film versions of Dune, you will spend more time on the version that doesn't exist than the one that does. <laughs> and that includes also, the, there's also a sci-fi channel version. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I, know, I, I didn't know that either. I, well, it shows every once in a while you type in Dune to Google, it shows up. It, Google gets confused. It doesn't know which one's the most popular one. Mm-hmm. And if you're dyslexic, you end up typing in nude, and you're in a whole different path. Oh, then, right? boy. <laughs> then things get really exciting and fun. We're making linguistic jokes over here. <laughs> Play the Breaking New Ground sound. We haven't done that in a while. But no, so I remember when I was reading this book, it was like, that was one of the more interesting ones, because obviously I, I, I had seen David Lynch's Dune at that time, mm-hmm. and to this day, I still don't think I have a firm grasp on that movie. 
<laughs> what are my feelings? Or where are my feelings? <laughs> that, like I said, we'll, we'll get to Dune eventually. That's one of those ones I know we'll get to that one day. That's definitely oh, that's, yeah. not like to, that's not like Tomorrowland where it's like perpetually on the horizon. <laughs> Dune's one that we, you really can't escape that. There's like, there's like a gravity to it. But oh, yeah. Where are my feelings? I feel for no one. So I, I kind of had a faint idea of what Dune was. And I kept hearing about this. And then it was during, I think... The summer of 2012, there kept being like all this talk about this documentary. I think this documentary went to production, I think, during the summer of 2012, maybe a little bit before. Mm-hmm. And you hear things like, oh, a documentary about the greatest film never made. Sure. And all throughout like my undergrad college, that was kind of like y- – you mentioned that movie to people – it was referenced as the greatest, like not the documentary. I, I mean, it's funny. We're going to be kind of defined when we say Jodorowsky's Dune. Are we talking <laughs> about the documentary or are we talking about his iteration or <laughs> cinematic interpretation of Frank Herbert's novel? Yeah, um, there's only so many context clues we can give. <laughs> yeah, I know. That becomes really, really annoying. Uh, but no, this is one of those ones where I remember in the lead up to this film being released in the spring of 2014, talking with my uh, cinema professors and I'm like Jodorowsky's Dune the cinematic interpretation is the greatest film that was never made. Like there's really no other film I can imagine mm-hmm. where there's that much kind of like excitement behind something that just fell apart. Even right now, like, like there's certain film projects. Like if, if this greatest films that were never made book was re reissued today, there'd be certain things. Like I know Disney for years have been trying to make another 20,000 leagues under the sea. Oh. And, it, and it just never gets off the ground. But there's things like that where it's like, Oh, and plus what goes on today with a lot of film studios, they keep a lot of their development stuff hidden. Mm-hmm. They don't, it's like, I think Tr- the sequel to Tron was another one that was perpetually in development. Okay. And it just never got anywhere until obviously the, uh, the sequel in 2010. But no, this was kind of the, I guess in the, like the golden era of things like this where Hollywood didn't have any secrets mm-hmm. or everybody who cared is now dead or retired. <laughs> Plus, as we'll get into, Jodorowsky, when he was part, trying to put this thing together, wasn't part of the Hollywood studio system. Yep. So there weren't any bruised egos trying to be sheltered in the process of this mm-hmm. thing being uncovered from its demise Yeah. 30-something years after the fact. That's a good point. That's a good point. I definitely think this, out of all the films we're going to be talking about, this Nope, nope Venber, yep. this is the most interesting in the sense of what could have been. Okay, I like that. Um, I have to say the same thing because even though, you know, I wanted to hear it from you because in terms of my history, someone who's not as entrenched in film as as Zach is, I had actually heard about this. I've heard about Jodorowsky's Dune for years, you know, kind of as a passing statement, but it was so prevalent that even I had heard of it. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. So I'm really excited to have watched this documentary because this was the first time I got to watch it. And I really liked what it, the insight it gave us onto what this movie could have been, because I am not the biggest fan of David Lynch's Dune. Um, so, but I, I guess I should say, and that might be a good thing to talk about, um, I have read all of Dune before, Herbert's novel. Have you read Dune, Zach? I, I bought a copy of Atlas Shrugged like in 2011. <laughs> I realized until, until I get through Atlas Shrugged, I'm never going to pick up Dune. Atlas Shrugged... Atlas Shrugged is a little better than Dune, I would say. I was not the biggest fan of Dune. Uh, The Fountainhead is the one I didn't get through. But that's a story for another time. Rob didn't finish a book once. Um, (laughs) So so I I think just for some context, Zach knows this. uh, When 
I was in late in high school hanging out with Zach in New York. I became absolutely enamored by a book called Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. It is one of the most difficult things to read. Difficult is, of course, an, an obje- a subjective term. Um, but after that, when how difficult and how much I had to change my brain space to read that book, I got really intrigued in reading the long classics, like the huge books that everybody says are great. So I worked through them. You know, I did Infinite Jest. I did Dune. I did The Stand, like the uncut edition of The Stand by Stephen King, where he's just like, I didn't take anything out in the editing process for this version. And it's like, great. Um, So think, you know, uh, War and Peace. I got through that. I didn't get the crime and punishment. Like I said, I didn't finish The Fountainhead. Um, But Dune was one of them. And I wasn't the biggest fan of Dune. And I think that's the first thing I want to say, is that this movie, the documentary Dune, is very much, you know, just like, hey, Dune is the greatest thing that's ever existed. Assume that and then put yourself in that mindset for this this documentary and this movie that could have been. I'm okay with that. I think it works for this documentary. But I want to go on record because I've said it before. People should not have tried to recreate Dune in film. They should have done Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. I think that's a much better sci-fi book. I think that's much easier to film, I would say. It's not a grand, you know, expansive space adventure, you know, space economy. Um, But uh, that's what I would say. And of course, I don't think we have a movie of Stranger in a Strange Land. Have you ever heard of that book or have you read that one, Zach? I have not heard of that. Okay, okay. That was actually four years prior to Dune, so it was a little earlier. Um, It's a very, very sci-fi book. It's a little more about religion, where Dune is, I would say, more about or has more influences of economics and things like that. But, you know, I I will state, of course, Dune is on record as, you know, the greatest selling sci-fi book of all time. So, of course, it's going to gain some popularity because of that in the cinema world. But, okay, Zach, I had to get that out of the way. I think Dune is, I'm not the biggest fan, um, you know, David Lynch's fan. I'm not the biggest fan of David Lynch's version either. There's better sci-fi books out there. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the Dune that could have been. So I know we have to talk about the Dune that could have been, but uh, I have to say one thing. This movie, this documentary, man, Jodorowsky's like an asshole. Like, I do not like this person. I really disagree with a lot of the things he said. Can we talk about that a little bit, Zach? Yeah, yeah, that's the vibe most people get from this is that he comes across now as very unlikable to people mm-hmm. of, of our generation and maybe a little bit older, but I know that was a thing where it was like, he, I don't know. Cause I remember when I first watched this back in 2014, I was so excited for this documentary. I was beyond yeah. like, I was genuinely like I was chomping at the bit. Cause there wasn't a lot of information about this. There was some, some artwork or yeah, some, some concept art here and there you would find online, mm-hmm. but it was more or less like in, you knew the story. It was like, okay, he, he, he brought a few of these people together, which we'll get into and he didn't get made. And so this was really kind of like the major cornerstone of this film that never existed. And you watch this and he comes across as a madman. Yes. A bad madman. <laughs> as I rewatched this though. I definitely enjoyed it more than I did when I originally watched it four okay. years ago. Okay. And I was surprised by that because I think now as time goes on and just getting older 
and having to like I, I think it's devastating to anybody to spend time on a project mm-hmm. and outside forces whether they be an individual person or just the perfect storm sure i think it's heartbreaking for anybody to lose hard work and i think that gives me a more profound appreciation for jodorowsky especially that he's trying to do something different mm-hmm and even though, like I said, we'll get into the nitty gritty of this, but the things that he promised again, like he promised Salvador Dali a hundred thousand dollars an hour, <laughs> and then a hundred thousand dollars admitted eventually. <laughs> yeah, and so I think uh, what was it Orson Welles, a favorite chef in France, was going to be flown in. Yeah, like things like that where he's like, I just promised everybody everything they wanted mm-hmm. if I got them. And it's like, and they're like, oh, and then we couldn't get the movie done because of financial reasons. It's <laughs> like, well, maybe if the director didn't just promise everything. Yeah. Maybe you could have gotten the movie made if he showed some restraint. I think some of that is is after the fact hyperbole. Because mm-hmm. I know, like, again, I, I reread the chapter in the book this afternoon about Jodorowsky's Dune, the okay. film, not the documentary. And it seems there is a lot of embellishment in the documentary okay it's like oh we're gonna sit there jodorowsky was doing stuff light years beyond his time in 1975 Mm -hmm. which i think i think that's true i think he was doing things here that i think inspired lucas i don't think you get star wars without this film. sure yeah sure but i do think that it's like oh after the fact it's kind of like Every hurricane, in retrospect, the, the the worst hurricane ever hit a specific location. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's just this thing's ne- this incarnation of the project is never going to exist. Mm-hmm. So why not let's puff this thing up to let it be this was the most fantastic, grandest experiment in the history of cinema that failed because people had too limited minds. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the ultimate detriment of this. Especially when you do have comments, like I said, he was probably like he, he took the checkbook out every second. Like, okay, and you want to check, and you want to check, and you want to check. How many zeros do you want in your check? Oh, you want seven zeros. Okay, okay. How many do you want, Mister Dolly? I want eight zeros. Perfect, perfect. That's my favorite number, actually. The number zero is my favorite number. And like that's why again, that's why I originally watched this. And it's like, oh, why did this film get made? And you can sum it up in one sentence: financial reasons. Not even a sentence. Two words. <laughs> and, I, and I think I don't know. I, I think that's why things like Star Wars, the story of Star Wars, is fascinating because, like, oh, Lucas had that financial pressure and was able to make it work. Yes, yes, I love that. Was a great joke, Zach, when you said how many zeros? Eight zeros. That's my favorite number. That was, good, <laughs> that was a great joke. You, if you step it up, you got You take one more step. You say eight zeros. Eight's my favorite number because it looks like two zeros on top of each other. Oh man, maybe 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 a couple weeks. Maybe when we do the uh, David Lynch Doom, we'll bring that joke back. We're still working out the kinks after what forty episodes of Cinemonities. <laughs> Too many episodes. Oh man, no, I, I I totally agree with what you're saying, Zach. Right there, you know, it's this movie. Um, I think the documentary. They are extreme. You know, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that it is embellished because, you know, uh, maybe not even embellished. It's just hypersensitized it seems like the movie when the movie starts the opening credits are rolling and it's just pictures of Jodorowsky and books he's written and so I was like is this going to be a massive ego stroke fest and it was it was it was basically like the first 10 minutes was everybody going this is the greatest thing that never got made and then it's Jodorowsky going intellectual property laws are the stupidest thing I've ever heard of and I'm like okay what is going on right now in Mexico, a young director cannot make pictures without the permission of the, of the old director, Junior. 
I say, what I need to take the permission to make art? Artists need to be free. I do my picture. And honestly, because I want to get into the Dune that could have been, the cast, which we've mentioned, and all these pictures and stuff. On, I, I think the movie would have worked better. The documentary would have worked better if they had flipped it. Like, at the very end of the documentary, they actually do comparisons of the Dune artwork with things that appeared in cinema. That's more of a motion, motivation for me to care about it at the start of 90 Minutes than, here's this dude, and he's going to say things that just, you know, would never hold up in today's age. I'm sure we're going to play the clip many times, but we have Joe Dorowski looking into a camera and saying, I was raping Frank Herbert with love. It's like you get married, no? You go with the wife, why the woman is wise, you take the woman. If you respect the woman, you will never have childs. You need to, to open the costume and to, to rape the bride. And then, and then you, will, you will have your picture. I was raping Frank Heber, you know, raping like this, but with love. With love. He says that. That's, that would not fly today. That, I don't think that should have flown when this movie was made, to be honest. But I, I think the documentary was poor. It was structured poorly. It was, I think it seemed to be a vanity project to, like, get this movie made. I'm doing air quotes. Um, but it, it just, it didn't sit well with me, which is exactly why I'm happy. We're not talking about the documentary too much. We're using that as our as our portal, like Zach said, into this unmade, incomplete movie. Did you feel the same way about this documentary? I know you said you liked it a little bit more. Um, I well, I think the structure of it, at least. I think no, I think because I think oh, this is a this is where the documentary is weird, because in a way, it it assumes that you know a lot about movies. You know how you know things like how star like how arduous Star Wars was to be made. Mm-hmm. You know the David Lynch's version is more or less reviled by everybody. Mm-hmm. It assumes you know a lot of stuff. Okay. Yet at the same time, it's holding your hand with. I, I think about it because like, you can't talk about Jodorowsky's Doom without Jodorowsky. Yes. And I can't imagine that he would have signed on to this if you were going to scrutinize him. He, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely get the vibe that he has an ego. He thinks very highly of himself. Oh, definitely. It's, especially after everybody talks to him, because, talks about him between the. I was rewatching. We'll get into it's one thing that's really a shame of this documentary, and not to get off track with Rod's point, but we'll get back there. Um, Dan O'Bannon. Mm-hmm. There's a clip. There's, I think there's what two or like one or two clips of him because he he died by the time this was. Oh um, yeah, his uh, his like voiceovers and stuff. his widow. They have his widow in there. Yep. Um, I know Dan O'Bannon. He was the original screenwriter of Alien. Okay. Yeah, I think they mentioned that in the, in the yes. documentary, well, right? Yeah. Yes. You do. For the record, you do not get Ridley Scott's Alien without this movie. Pretty much everybody that was involved with this production got brought over to Alien. That for the was, most part. That that's like like I said before, you know, that stuff, well, I mentioned specifically they they compared the Dune artwork to the things that exist in popular film. Um, but I really liked that as well. The documentary at the very end is like, oh hey, the whole team he put together basically went on to create all these great movies. That is wildly interesting to me. Oh, so right. yeah, I, I love that stuff. All right, just for clarification. When I say the name H.R. Giger, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, I would 
say him, honestly. I followed his artwork for a very, very long time. But to, be, to answer your question, probably the way you want it, is Alien. That's, yes. That's, that's exactly where I know him from. That's, it's just now that I, I see him more as an artist than as that movie's designer. That's, and that's what this movie... Because the moment you bring in H.R. Giger into anything... It's, I remember back in high school, Rob remembers our, our, well, not our, my physics teacher, Mr. We Met, and he mm. told us back when he was teaching us physics, if you ever see the word inertia, cross it out and write mass. <laughs> anytime, you see the word, anytime you see the name H.R. Giger, cross it out and write the word alien. That's, <laughs> and, and that's essentially what it is, because Giger was a very talented artist, but he had one hand and he played it really well his entire life. Yep. Oh yeah. He specialized in one type of artwork. It, it, he really had the uh, the lock on it, but he, he, it was only one time. I'm sorry, one type. And so, but again, getting back to Dan O'Bannon and Rob's original point was that Dan o, there's a alien on the DVD or Blu-ray box set for the Alien first four films. This is before mm-hmm. Prometheus and all that. Sure. And I think it was on the DVDs that came out in 2003. Fox produced back when they actually did these sort of things. Film studios. Hours-long documentaries about the making of all these films. I think it's like a okay. three-hour-long documentary on Alien. And even though I really love Alien, the mm-hmm. documentary is infinitely more interesting than the film. Oh. Because there is so much drama that went into that film that nobody talks about. Okay. And Dan O'Bannon, he's he's featured heavily in the first maybe like hour of that. Because once they – during the pre-production and the writing of the film, mm-hmm. he, and he's, he's ha- um, featured heavily. Then during the production – and he shows up a little bit during post-production. That's how the documentary is segmented. Pre-production, production, post. Okay. And Daniel Ban is my spirit animal. <laughs> he is the, I think, I, this, I don't want to say miserly, but he is, like, he. not that he doesn't put up with nonsense, though, but, like, he's perpetually frustrated. Someone is always in his way. Someone's trying to take his credit. Someone's trying to kill what he's doing. Uh. And, and it, it's fascinating watching him just do his thing. Okay. And that's the team that, because you have Mobius, the artist, mm-hmm. Chris Foss, who's another artist, yep. and you had Dan O'Bannon. That's that's kind of the, and, and Giger showed up toward the end of, of Jodorowsky's Dune as, as a designer. He was really mm-hmm. kind of the tail end, or at least... That's another weird thing about this is that the, in the documentary they make it sound like oh, Jodorowsky brought all these people together and they worked on this thing for years. I don't know if that's true. From my understanding, it's only for a few months. Oh, okay. okay. I don't know. I, it's funny. I, so I was reading my book today. I couldn't get a firm grasp on that mm-hmm. because I know that, and obviously we'll highlight this too. That in the movie, the documentary, they show this giant like. Rob probably has a better word for it to describe it than I do, but like it is encyclopedic of everything that this film could have been. Oh yeah, it's, it's yeah. the size. It's it's comical looking almost. Yeah, I mean, I, I've only seen a few books that big, and it's like that: the Dune book and um, the Bardavon book of all the birds of North America. <laughs> like it just it's it is it's a book bigger than you'd ever expect in every dimension. Exactly. It, it's. I'd say it's got to be thicker than most people. It's what? It's <laughs> yeah. on, on its tallest side, probably what? Two feet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'd say it's um, ballpark. It's it's close to the size of Orson Welles, I would say, in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, but no, like you see that, and you're like, oh, look at like we had everything mapped out. 
Um, eleven, and I think, and they kind of hinted later in the film that that's the reason why a lot got stolen from the film because they had everything laid out. They explained everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and I don't want to jump ahead too far though, but you have all these people put together in a room, and that was, and, and I know I found this documentary online. I think there was a documentary on the artist Mobius, and Dan O'Bannon's oh. interviewed. And Dan O'Ban describes Jodorowsky as a shaman that just made everybody, anybody who Jodorowsky interacted with in the seventies made their lives better. And okay. I don't, and we don't know if the, the Jodorowsky of the 1970s is a different person than the man that's of the two early 2010s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they say, they make a point in the documentary saying he was, you, you watch El Topo. I've seen El Topo once. I think I never need, I never need to see El Topo again. <laughs> that's one of those films. You can't sample it once. You're like, okay, I did it once. It's like, what's the old saying? Uh, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. It's like, don't need to ever do this again. Is that is, is that the saying, Zach? <laughs> yeah, you, you never heard that before. No, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Really? Once a philosopher, yeah. twice a pervert. Never. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, but that, that's Jodorowsky in a nutshell with me in this film. So it's like <laughs> okay. I know they mentioned the Holy Mountain in this, and I'm like, I don't need to see that. It's like you know what? I, the clips they've shown this is more than enough. I need to wet my appetite. Okay. And okay. they make a point. You think about Jodorowsky, and you expect this eccentric man that's like like. It's like it's like the David Lynch thing. You show people a racer head, you show them Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. and you expect a guy who looks like Rob Zombie. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the, like that's the person you imagine that makes weird crap. Yep. And you look at David Lynch; he's just a guy with like a wonky haircut. Yeah. yeah. Well spoken, articulate, and they say that's what Jodorowsky was. He was clean shaven, which I think is the most mind blowing thing of this documentary. That in the seventies. Jodorowsky had a clean-shaven face. <laughs> like, that's mind-blowing to me. I don't know why, but it is. That's funny. But I think, I don't know. Like, Jodorowsky's been, he really, outside of El Topo, is really not known for anything. Like, besides, yeah, yeah, besides I, I, that. I would say that, you know, if you went to uh, a, a common person, I'm thinking of someone in my circles that, you know, isn't entrenched in film, um, you know, less than me, Certainly less than Zach. You know, if you talk about Jodorowsky, I feel like the only chance of someone knowing him would be the Dune idea. That's oh, really? Really, the Dune idea, not El Topo? Yeah, I think more people that I know would would not be aware of El Topo. They would be more likely to to, to hear or think of Dune. That's interesting because I why again much like how we I joked about H R Giger you cross out his name when I think of Jodorowsky it's like El Topo like that okay, okay. Th- there it is that's that's his claim to fame and, and it is it, it's a hallmark of um, midnight cinema a foreign language cinema it really was because I, I they talk about a little bit in this the fact that he was working outside the union system which like I don't know yeah like, yeah. I, that's again I don't want again it's, I, I keep saying the phrase I don't want to jump ahead <laughs> but it's. The, the most interesting thing about this movie is, and I guess this is the part where I, I look at the idea of a cinemati a, a little differently than Rob. Mm-hmm. Like, understanding how the film studios work. And I, I, I understand what they, especially in the 70s. The, the films, the, the, I don't know how much Rob knows of this, so I don't want to bore him. But back during the 70s, or I guess the 60s, the whole film studio blew up, or the film studio system blew up. 
like where you have actors under contract, they have they all blew up. Basically, you had had new American cinema. You had things like Easy Rider, where basically the directors became the the driving force behind these movies. Okay. Before you would have Louis B. Mayer sitting in his office, chomping on the cigar, saying, "The kids want to see more of this Doris Day. Get me Doris Day and Rock Hudson." <laughs> okay. That's, that's how movies got made. There was a guy. The executive said, "This is what we're doing." And that all fell apart because all the major studio heads were all selling off the studios. And they really, nobody knew what they were doing anymore. It was kind of like, okay. oh, my God. So, again, things like when uh, Dustin Hoffman and Peter Fonda came in with Easy Rider, which is really when the system blew up. That was the, the beginning, I guess, of the new system. Okay. And then you started to get more auteur-friendly projects. And that's when you have your Francis Ford Coppola showed up, your Scorsese showed up, and then Spielberg and Lucas ruined it all by making it commercial. <laughs> Definitely. And, 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 and so you do have this weird point in cinematic history where nobody knows what's going to happen. You're in a transition point. No, mm-hmm. Nobody's aware you're in a transition point. At that, Obviously, nobody knows when a transition is happening until after yeah. it's completed. And so you have Jodorowsky come in, and he presents this. And they say they gave this giant – are we going to call this a book? Is there a better name for this? A Bible? Um, is, is this, the, is this the, the Dune Bible? I – I feel like calling it a book is underselling it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know if I'd say Bible is probably a good um, like slang term for it. There's got to be a real term for it. It's it's like it is the instruction manual. <laughs> yeah, the instruction manual is probably good. I was about to say it's like the actualization or the visualization of a concept of an idea. And so that's what an instruction manual is. When you buy furniture from Ikea, it's just an idea, you know? It's not a desk, it's just an idea. And then you have to follow this document to make it actually exist. So I like instruction manual. That's a good one. I, I guess that's what it is, because like, I remember why I watched this back in 2014 and why I didn't like this. I'm like, I want that book. I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I want I that. I think that right now. There's very few books I really want, and this is now one of them. And I remember asking my uh, cinema professors, because I, I think I've told Rob this off mic, but I'll tell the story now. When I was in college, film studies minor, one of my professors, he ran like a quasi-Netflix before, I guess back I think during the 80s, when you would have a, a videotapes cost hundreds of dollars. Okay. And so it was all more art films. And so my teacher wanted to know when El Topo was going to be released on home video, a VHS. And he was somewhere... And Jodorowsky was there. And he went up to him and goes, he called, Mr. Jodorowsky, when is El Topo getting a home video release? And he goes, I work for, or I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you owned it, whatever it is, I work for this company, we rent out movies, and, and, and it's more stuff for educational purposes. Yeah, yeah. And we want, and we want to share El Topo, because at this point, I think you probably, I guess it was either 35mm print or 16mm, okay. don't know, I'm, just, I'm speculating that part by myself. And Jodorowsky turned around to him and said, my friend, I give you the right to the home video of <laughs> El Topo. And I remember my <laughs> professor, after he told me, he goes, what kind of asshole does that? Yeah, It's like, yes. I make, it's like, if I go out and do this, someone's going to sue me. Oh, yeah. Like, this, is, this is not a contract. He just, and if I did go do it, he'd get me in the hot water and he's absolved of any wrongdoing. Yeah. And it's like, what kind of, he actually said the word asshole. <laughs> and I think that's, and, and that kind of sums up, and this is back during the 80s. So clearly, Jodorowsky hasn't changed that much from that time period to the early 2010s. 
Yeah, and, yeah. And, that, and I guess he's just that type of person, because they do mention that in the film when he made El Topo, he did it outside the union system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when he talks about the length of this, and they say that when he had his script, his, his script was, I think, longer than the actual Dune book. Yeah. And... I think, because again, I, I look at this and how Hollywood, they talk about that a couple of times, like Hollywood needs a, we've joked about on this podcast, much like how Zack Snyder pitched uh, Batman v Superman by saying we're going to have a superhero movie combined with the, the attacks of 9-11. Mm-hmm. They complain, saying like, that's how Hollywood responds to things. If you can cross two popular things and say, this is what I'm going to make you, they buy into it. But if you went to Hollywood in the 70s, I think even now, if you went with a, that giant instruction manual of how to make this movie, and said, we have the actors, we have the financing, basically all we need you to do is tell us go and we'll get this done. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine anyone saying no to that. Yeah, yeah. It's because all you, right there for him. Exactly, because if you can realize a project that doesn't exist in such vivid detail before somebody's eyes, mm-hmm. and especially because I in, my, in the documentary they don't cover this, because they make it sound like they have all of their... That's a weird thing documentary. They say, oh... We had the $15 million, but it fell apart for financial reasons. Well, yeah. if, you had, if you had the $15 million, then how did it fall apart? You usually – money doesn't dissipate in the thin air. Yeah, there's some mention of like the, they need like another $5 million more or something, right? Like really briefly? Yes, because in my, in my book, I actually made – I highlighted it just for this discussion. <laughs> they say, faced with the prospect of an unworkable distribution strategy – a crucial component of the financing structure, Sado's cons- consortium withdrew funding for the film. And from what my understanding is, was that they needed money for distribution. Okay. This isn't like today where even though like Lucasfilm makes Star Wars, Disney obviously covers the distribution costs because they're their own yeah. distributor. Mm-hmm. And that, and they say in, in the in the book, they need at least a thousand screens to make this profitable. Okay. And the Universals, the Paramounts, the Disneys, the I guess Fox was around at that time. The Foxes mm-hmm. refused. They refused to put up any money for this. Yeah. And I I don't again. That's the weird thing. It's like if they need only that little of an investment, like a third of the budget, and I think. What probably turned them off was not financial reasons. And I think this is where Rob was saying where the documentary pulls some punches. It's the fact that Jodorowsky goes in there and says, I'm going to make a 14-hour epic, a 20-hour yeah. epic. Oh, it's my like, God. Screw these people. That blew my mind when he's like, he's like, they wanted me to make this movie an hour and a half. It's going to be 12 hours. It's going to be 20 hours. And I'm like... I'm like, how self-centered are you that you think people are going to want to watch shit that you produced that long, right? <laughs> and that's, I think, bingo. And I think that's probably the reason why they looked at this guy. They looked at El Topo. They looked at what he was promising everybody mm-hmm. and said, there's no way we can control this man. Because I know yeah. a couple of times the line has said, like, oh, they were afraid of him. And I'm like, yeah, they probably were afraid of him. I think I'm afraid of him. Yeah, uh, and afraid of him in the sense that he was not going to make them money in the way that they wanted to make money. Or or not even in that, because my issue with this movie is if this, let's say for the record, Jodorowsky gets this movie made. Mm-hmm. And for whatever stroke of, of, 
of a prayer or whatever it is. He gets this made for $15 million in the way that he wants to. He doesn't, he compromises only in a financial sense. Like okay. he, he sits there, he keeps everything within the budget and he keeps it more or less on time and the film goes out. Yes. I think this might be the ultimate kind of like thesis question of this episode is if this comes out before star Wars, does this become star Wars? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the question. biggest mystery of this film all is, again, I remember even when I was in, again, not to go back to when I was in college, though, but it's, I remember asking the teacher, saying, was Star Wars that impactful in film history? Mm-hmm. And they said, you, they said, beyond the creation of the camera and film and things like that, and you look at film in a modern sense, pretty much anything post, I'd say, probably 1930s. Mm-hmm. You have before Star Wars and after Star Wars. Sure. Star Wars changed the game forever. Oh yeah, yeah. It was the and first so, blockbuster, right? Well, that was well. That's that was Jaws though. Jaws was the well. This is kind of like a, a chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm, but Jaws mm-hmm. was technically Jaws. Kind of, I guess. What's the word? Um, cleared the path. Gotcha. That yeah. Star Wars eventually took. You had the fa- you had the foundation for that. Yeah. That's Star fair. Wars. Star Wars was this thing that where nobody real it was unprecedented. Nobody had any faith in it. Mm-hmm. It was going to make money. I think everyone was confident it was going it was going to make make some money, but it was not going to be this cultural touchstone that to this day we're still feeling the ver- reverberations of. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And that's my question though, Zev, and they even they mentioned it later on in the documentary where they showed the fact that they had lightsaber duels for lack mm-hmm. of a better lack of a better uh yeah. term. I don't know because you look at this and they do it to like they show certain things like um, one of the ones that really kind of pissed me off. They show the uh, I think it's the the Giger Harkonnen land where you have like the the giant person is the like not building but structure. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh look, it, it showed up in Prometheus. And yeah, like, the, well, the ones where they were like, you know, it's like, oh look at this actual film footage, and right in the corner you can see like the names of the people that worked on it, and it's the same people that worked on Dune. Yeah, and it's like I get the point you're making, but that's not a good example. It's like, no. oh, Mobius drew something he drew five years earlier. What a shock, right? Yeah, and like, but again, like going back to like the Prometheus thing, that was like, oh. Ridley Scott was deliberately trying to bring back ideas that mm-hmm. were trying to make it not retro, but like bring back old, like in like everything yep. we do now, we bring, we recycle ideas of the seventies. Yep. And that's not really a good example. Again, like they said, and I think we mentioned it earlier is that you do not get alien without this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and without alien, you don't get blade runner and yeah. without blade runner. Do you get like you, you lose all these other things because like, Oh, at that point, would you get a total recall? Because if Blade Runner didn't exist, there really wasn't. It's like, oh, do we want to do a Philip? K- At that point, Philip K. Dick's kind of played out, um, and that's kind of the issue. It's like this is the foundation for a bunch of stuff that did exist, that did come yeah. to fruition, mm-hmm. which I think does make this a very unique. I don't want to say cinematic, but it makes it a very unique concept. In yes. that, can something that doesn't exist be a foundation for other things? Yeah, it's it's like uh, with how you just described it, how you just said, you know, if this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen, so on, so on. It's like a reverse domino effect or the domino effect of creation where things aren't falling, but they're being stood up. And the thing that started it doesn't even really stand up at all. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very it's, philosophical episode of the Cinematis podcast. Yeah, that's that's November for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why we I think we started off with this because this is the – Granddaddy Poobah mm-hmm. of November. 
Yeah. And that definitely. this does like it's weird because if this does come out and let's say it bombs royally. I doubt Fox would have given Lucas money to make Star Wars. Yeah, this if this failing, this being released and failing would have changed the tone of sci-fi drastically, I would imagine, in film. Yeah, and that's and that's one thing I'm a little like I I, I don't know. But I would have loved to have seen an aspect of this documentary where I know they have a they have like Nicholas Winding Refn's in there. I don't know mm-hmm. why. <laughs> he's just a friend, uh, it seems. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just there. Um, Richard Stanley, who oddly enough we'll be talking about in a couple weeks, is there. Yeah. Yep. Like, like Richard, it's funny. Richard Stan, it's like now I, I I completely forgot Richard Stanley was in this. I don't even know who he was when I when I originally watched this, and now I watched him like, oh, he's only in here because the same exact thing happened to him. How many years <laughs> later? Like yeah. twenty years later, they did the exact same thing to him. <laughs> yep. And. I look back, there's like, well, I would have loved to have seen this with this, though. It's like, I would have loved to have seen, oh, what's his name? Oh, my God. Um, Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. I would love to have seen him in, in, uh, interviewed. Lucas interviewed. Not Scorsese. I don't think, I think Scorsese's never been interested in things like this. Okay. But, but them, because the, uh, Spielberg interviewed. Because these are the guys that back during the 70s had their, that would have gotten the whole, because you had, let's say, uh, Jodorowsky and Michel Sidhu bring this giant instruction booklet to all mm-hmm. the studios. Yep. And Sid Sheinberg, who's the head of Universal at the time, was very close with Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. They go to Universal and they pitch this, and Sid Sheinberg says no, but they keep the book. I would imagine within probably 48 hours, Spielberg was called in and said, check this out. Yeah, that makes and, the most sense, right? And that's I think it's and they 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 subtly introduced that and saying like oh look at all these other things that borrowed from it though mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I think there should have been at least a title card in this saying we we reached out for interviews from Spielberg Scorsese not Scorsese uh, Spielberg Coppola yep. and Lucas about this and they all refused oh. there should have been because I think they're the ones that reap the benefits of this yeah. And so, and I think it's weird that there's no aspect of this documentary where, because again, I think this this film ties so directly into Star Wars. Like, it's always been a weird thing because Star Wars history is weirder. But Lucas always talks about like, oh, I've had the idea for Star Wars forever. Always, I only wanted to make three films. I wanted THX, a pulpy space serial, and a pulpy 1930s adventure serial. I yeah. that's all Lucas ever talked about. I had three <laughs> movies I ever wanted to make, and that was it. And so it's like, oh. But how much of this was Lucas saw what they were doing here and said, is this what I have? Because I know when Lucas tried to get Star Wars made, he had to go to Christopher McQuarrie. Mm-hmm. And it was the concept art that eventually sold Fox on this. Okay. And so, but at that time, I don't think that was a, a norm. Was gotcha. that you had to hire a concept artist or hi- just hire an artist in general and say, here's my story treatment. Create me fantastic visuals. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was a, a norm until Jordorowski tried pitching this or, again, the, the collective that tried pitching this. Yeah. And okay. I think that's weird that that's not highlighted in this. The fact that I, I would imagine nobody wants to make a film saying George Lucas ripped off. That doesn't look good for anybody. I imagine Jodorowsky would have said, no, 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 no. Yeah, but, um, I, but I see what you're saying in the sense that it was like, um, you know, why isn't the creation of that book and its impact on, you know, marketing this movie to try and get it made highlighted more? Sure. And because they say that every major film studio got one. Yeah. And like, what, they say there's what? There were eight of them in existence at one point? 
I think it when they first introduce they they say that there's only uh, I think it's the friend that might say it, but I believe I remember him saying there's only two in existence anymore. Well, now, but when they originally oh, but when created given, them, ah, that I don't recall. But it would have to be you know eight, ten, double under digits. T- yeah, under ten. ten? Yeah. Okay, I, that's what I had to guess because they said they went. They said every major studio got one. Yeah, they mentioned so, Universal. They mentioned MGM. They mentioned Disney. So yeah, you're right. So. What happened to all these? That's I think that would be if we're gonna make a if we were to make a follow up documentary with this, it would be what's an Indiana Jones esque title? It's like <laughs> the mystery of the Jodorowsky Bible, or yeah, the Jodorowsky yeah. Dune Bible, mm-hmm. or instruction manual, whatever, whatever title snappier. Because <laughs> I want to know where this went. Like you have this again, you can't misplace something like this. This isn't like <laughs> this isn't like um oh god, I'm trying to think of an example. Like um, the Shining, the Shining when they apparently there was like an extra five minutes of the Shining that that the day the film went out in the theaters the opening weekend after like the Saturday matinee matinee showing Kubrick called up like the four theaters that were playing it and were like cut that last scene out take the scissors I want oh. them out by the end of the night oh man okay and something like that where that could very easily get lost yeah if, <laughs> if it even exists if it even exists right now I know there's a couple of uh, production stills of it I think I I, I don't know. I'm but choking, like on like, my, choking on my own saliva, but I have to mention Freaked, right? How it took them years to find that print of Freaked? Yeah, like anything yeah. like that. But thing, like, things like that can be misplaced easily. Mm-hmm. A giant Good point. Good point. book. And tech, like, I don't know, because that's a weird one, too, where it's interesting that nobody pursued... I, I guess back in the 70s, nobody thought this way. Nobody was cynical in the, in, in the idea of uh, intellectual property ownership wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. It's like I try to pitch this idea, and I guess by doing that, I can see the fact that you, there's a, a very real possibility you will steal my idea. Yeah, yeah. So I, I said that's. I think that's the most interesting part of this entire documentary is that book. I think that book is the Boba Fett of this documentary. <laughs> it's it's a mysterious thing that needs to be focused on a lot more. Yeah, it's on my wish list. I want one of these books for sure. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, that's one where you'd think even for, like, someone would have would pay Jodorowsky or there'd be a Kickstarter giving him $5,000 and somebody scans that book into the internet and it's just available as a digital text. Yeah, yeah, that would, that's, it seems like that would make an incredible amount of money. That's what I mean, because I remember talking, you know, at the time when I was with my cinema professors, because this was out, I think, during the last couple months of college. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I want this book. And they're like, oh, it'd be too expensive to make a book like this or, or to reproduce it. And it's like, well, not today, though, considering that we have technology where before you'd have to, like, take the spine apart, feed it through some sort of scanning mechanism. Yeah. But technology these days, all you got to do is just with cameras and certain technology, just scan it at the right angle mm-hmm. with, a, with a specific type of camera. And you get fantastic resolution oh yeah yeah so i don't know why they wouldn't considering that all it would take is probably an afternoon's worth of work or maybe I don't know, maybe a weekend's worth of work <laughs> and and I, I don't know like even to this day i don't understand why and maybe I, I don't want to talk too much but like why hasn't somebody made this into like a animated serial yeah yeah i'm, I'm right with uh, they even say that in the movie i think jodoreski says it. he's like someone should take this and animate it like it'd be doable today and I totally agree. And it's confusing as to why that hasn't happened, for sure. 
Like, why hasn't a Netflix picked up on that? Considering that, like, Netflix, much like Jodorowsky in the 70s, mm-hmm. Netflix writes, writes a check to anybody who has an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why not do something like this? And that would get them a lot. And you make that. I know when this, this documentary came out, it got a lot of acclaim. Okay. Why not do something like, like I know Netflix now is having a lot of financial problems because they're like, oh, crap, we can't just write a check to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that walks in the door with an idea. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, why isn't Amazon doing that? Why yeah. isn't any, like, again, I, I obviously, I don't know. I think, like, I, I, not maybe not Hulu. That doesn't seem like a Hulu idea. But I don't know, though. Like, I, you'd feel today someone would sit there, considering now you can do animation mm-hmm. more cost-effective than you could even 10 years ago. I don't know. I guess that's I a know. really weird one where I, I don't know. Is, okay, you, you're Mister. Um, uh, you know your literature is Dune a, a dirty word? Like like the book and just the it's like that like a dirty word. You just don't bring that up anymore, or no? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I say Dune gets its has its fair stay, um, or I guess it's it's clout in the literary community. Um, I I. I you know, I'm thinking of something like, you know, Infinite Jest. Like, Infinite Jest is, is another, it's an American novel, much later than Dune, of course, but uh, it's huge. It's, it, I think it's shorter than Dune, but it's a, it's a lengthy book, and it's going to take you a while to get through. Um, that is when, that's an example of a dirty word. Like, Infinite Jest has a, has a reputation of being, it's like, if you think you're a smart person and you know literature, you only read Infinite Jest, and that's it. And so it's like if you say, oh, I've read Infinite Jest, no one gives you much credibility. If you say you read Dune, I think people still respect that. Um, But see, respect in the literary community has never stopped a movie from getting made. Usually I would say it facilitates the process. Like with the Harry Potters. That was a huge success for kids, for adults, for everything. You know, maybe not as much a literary product as a commercial product, but they couldn't turn that into a movie fast enough, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so for Dune, I'm not sure. There, there might be something behind the scenes. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's a dirty word because of the David Lynch version and not necessarily anything else. Um, so maybe I, the correct thing is maybe that the David Lynch version poisoned the well. That, that could be the case because, uh, yeah, you know, maybe the people, whenever I think of Dune, whenever I think uh, people think of the movie David Lynch's Dune, they think of flop of of comedy of so bad it's funny type of thing uh, i've told zach the story before where i got to see dune david lynch's dune in a little kind of art house theater you know one tier of seats maybe 50 people in there and it was constant laughter the entire time of the movie people were dying laughing um so that i think that that's a totally real possibility i would ask as i often do who do we tweet zach <laughs> can we tweet Jodorowsky and he can yell at us and we're going to be like, why isn't there an animated Dune? And he's going to go, my friend, you can animate Dune. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to tweet us that. <laughs> oh, God. Because I guess one thing we had to bring up, too, is that, like, ever, I guess there's only, what, two cinematic adaptations of Dune. You have David Lynch's. Yep. You have the Sci-Fi Channel one from, I think, the early 2000s. And it's always being perpetually threatened. It's like, yeah. oh, I, I think Denis Villeneuve is attached right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We haven't even talked about that. Denis Villeneuve is supposed to. I think they got 
they're in the same stage that Jodorowsky was. Like, they, they want to make it. There's some actors attached. That type of thing is what I've heard. Yeah. And, like, I, like obviously, everybody wants to give it their own spin. Nobody wants to come on to a project like Dune and say, okay, I'm going to use the previous guy's work. Yeah. That's yeah. just the, the egos of Hollywood just won't allow that, even if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to. I, again, I, again, Dune, I guess Dune's one. I, I also don't know how you make Dune appealing for the big screen. Like, it's one of those things where maybe we'll find out, like, with something like Watchmen, like when they do the HBO Watchmen, yeah. where it's like, considering now that we can do 14, 20 hours of something and mm-hmm. give it a nice size budget, yep. like, considering that we, we you could do a 21 hour, insta- 21 hour installments of a Jodorowsky Dune. And no one would bat an eye. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, at the same time, like thinking about, I was thinking about that. Like, if you do an animation, and I feel like after a while, it would kind of, it feel like almost something like anime. Mm-hmm. Like, this feels like almost. I know, obviously, anime was was around before Jodorowsky started doing stuff like this. Like, you did have that type of animation, but like, I feel this would eventually blur into that. That's a good point. Um... I, I agree with you there, and honestly, I, I would imagine that if we did a little bit of research, we could find animes that were inspired by Dune, the novel, for sure. I, I, that's, I, I, yeah. I, that's, that's a weird thing about this movie, is that it's, I, I, I agree with Rob, I don't think it's the best documentary you can make on this, mm-hmm. but I think considering that you do, you want to make it, considering that, God, Jodorowsky's 80-something years old now, never yeah. mind what he was then. You have to make these things quick while everybody's still alive, mm-hmm. except for Dan O'Bannon. I don't think we talked about the Alien movie, the original, a lot on here, though. But if we ever do get to that, I think we would discuss, if I had my druthers, we would discuss the documentary of Alien before okay. we would discuss the movie. Because Dan O'Bannon, actually, I, I don't know if I can, who knows if I can find any clips of him. But he is, I, I guess we should maybe talk a little bit about the, the people that Jodorowsky brought together for this. Mm-hmm. But... Dan O'Bannon, I can not think that the, the ultimate because I don't think I knew he was involved with this until I saw this documentary. Oh. I knew him. I knew him from the documentary because because yeah. he's he's very recognizable in the Alien documentary. Okay, because he has like a pl- I don't want to say plaid, but kind of like a checker pattern, like button up shirt, suspenders, and like a red bow tie. <laughs> okay, and he has like pitch white hair and like a beard. Mm. He, he's a very lanky man, and he just, again he's very soft spoken. He's very again articulate, not yep. not. Again, he's not Rob Zombie. I don't know why I keep dunking on Rob Zombie. Um, but for some reason, I just keep doing that. But no, I, I, I would have loved to have seen Dan O'Bannon in this documentary. Because he would just been like... Because the Dan O'Bannon history is fun. Because how he got started was he was a very close friend of John Carpenter. Okay. And they made a film called Dark Star. Which I've, I've wanted to watch that movie for years and I just never have gotten to. It. I think they were they were film school friends. And what happened was, I'm trying to think what book this was. There's a book I read this in. I don't know what book it is now. I gotta go back and find it. Mm-hmm. Where they made this film Dark Star. It was like a pair it's kinda like it was funny. It was like a parody of Alien before Alien ever existed. Okay. And I think the villain of the movie is like a like a beach ball on a spaceship. <laughs> Okay. And and John Carpenter directed it, but Dan O'Bannon created all the the effects and sets for it. Mm-hmm. it it's a poor man. The effects are very poor man's two thousand one. Sure, which is understandable, obviously, considering that Kubrick had a very large budget with two thousand one. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, I think Dan O'Bannon felt okay. I'm going to hitch my 
myself to the star of John Carpenter. And John Carpenter basically told him to go F himself. Oh. And Dan ba- Dan O'Bannon was furious because one of the highlights of Dark Star was the special effects mm-hmm. and felt that he had just been completely... Okay, that, okay, now I remember what book that's from. Okay, I gotta go back and find that book. That book was fascinating when that came in. But, and that was the whole thing that happened to Daniel Bannon. Because Dan, at that point, Daniel Bannon just started hating everybody. Okay. Because he felt <laughs> like he he built this this mil- movie, or I guess the sets for Carpenter. Yeah, Carpenter just threw yeah. him aside. And that just became a thing. And then he got burned with Jodorowsky's Dune. Because mm-hmm. they mentioned in this that he sold his car. He like he sold or He moved out of his, wherever he was living. Yeah. And he yeah. had nowhere to go. And I think he got burned with that. And so when he, he wrote Alien with, I think, uh, Ron Schuster, I think is the guy's name. Okay. And then when Alien came around, they kept doing, because they're the ones who kind of, for the most part, did the, their story is the foundation of it. Yeah. But it was later rewrites that created, that made Ellen Ripley into a woman. Or I guess, because the character was never Ellen Ripley, it was just Ripley in the original script. Okay. And one, and one rewrite made her a woman. And they felt that entitled them to the sole screenwriting credit. And mm. Dan O'Ban just goes ballistic in the Alien documentary. It's like, who were they? They thought I brought this to arbitration. And I got <laughs> and the arbitrator in the arbitration committee sided with me. And for years, they told me I stole their credit. I have. Please, you two. We can still reach an agreement. I don't know. I think this might go beyond simple mediation. No. Damn it. We're going to arbitration. No! <laughs> Like it's just like he's just, like he's hysterical because he just rants about everything, <laughs> and that's and he is he's a character. He's like he's one of those people I put up there. Like I would have loved to have met. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, he's my spirit animal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, no, he, cool. he's really a fascinating because I know because because Giger's dead now. Yep. Dan O'Bannon's dead now. Um, Mobius is dead now. Mm-hmm. It's like I think Chris Foss is still alive. I think he's still alive. But that's the kind of sad thing with something like this, where it's like all these it's it's well, it's like anything in life. All these people are just dropping off. And, and, and really all that we're going to have, because I, I think very early in the documentary they mentioned that, uh, I think it's Nicholas Winding reference, like, I sat down and had dinner at Jodorowsky's house, and he explained his version of Dune to me. Yeah. And that even though Jodorowsky might be an a-hole, once he dies, like, that's kind of it. Like, you yeah. know, he has this giant instruction manual. There are things that only he would know or want to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the – you'd think – again, like, Netflix is writing a check to everybody – Somebody at Netflix would be like, okay, this might not make us a lot of money, but it would buy us. Like, again, it's one of those, it's one of my favorite Hollywood stories was when Disney released, Fant- Walt Disney released Fantasia in like 1941. It was a notorious bomb for the company. Like, oh, okay. Like, it's funny. Every single Disney movie, whether it be Snow White, um, I think it was Pinocchio was next. Every single one of Disney's original movies cost more and more money. Like an absurd amount of money for the time. Every single time they always like they just made enough money to be profitable and everyone sighed a breath of relief and Walt was like, We're gonna make it cost even more money this time. <laughs> and it was I think it was Fantasia, I think, came out I think in nineteen forty one. So it was the it was the World War it was uh, the second world war. Yep. There was no more European markets, the movie bombed. It is a story that twenty years okay. later, I think it was like nineteen sixty or nineteen sixty one, Walt Disney was in a meeting. The secretary, a secretary comes in, hands him a note, and walks out. And he starts laughing hysterically, and everyone's like, "Walt, what's so funny?" He goes, "Fantasia's now just in the black," and <laughs> and that's and that's that the fun. <laughs> that's the fun thing with with um, Hollywood is that like we hear about like all these massive box office bombs, yet they do make money in the long term. 
Yeah. Never mind. You, yeah. Never mind. Also, when you have these these bombs, you can also write them off for tax purposes. It's like no nobody's really losing money at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. But you think again? There's you think somebody like a, the director of content creation at Netflix would be like, okay, let's do this. Let's get the rights, or let's get the animation rights. Like let whoever film studio, whether it be Universal or Paramount or whoever, let them make their live action version. Let's do this. Yeah. And yeah. just see, like, you get the animation rights. Like, yeah. I, I really, you'd think somebody would have the wherewithal to say, like, even if it might not make us money in the short term. Like, again, we have, what's the thing on Netflix? Big Mouth? Oh, yeah. yeah. We're, we're paying Nick Kroll, like, a seven-figure salary to talk about teenagers touching themselves? Mm-hmm. It's like, come on, man. It's like, nobody signed up for Netflix to watch that. Nobody signed up. <laughs> like that's what we're gonna dump our money on. The, the was it the pervert monster, whatever his name is. The pervert monster. <laughs> I don't know. All I know. I remember when that came out. Like all I did was get like ads on YouTube for that, and I screamed after like the fourth one. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Like you're Netflix. You got tons of money, or at least you mm-hmm. did have lots of money. Don't don't spend it frivolously. Yeah. Well, that's gives Jordan that, some their, money. That's their business plan is to spend it frivolous, frivolously. I think. <laughs> Maybe Jodorowsky is the, like, the CFO of Netflix. <laughs> yeah, that could, I could see that. Oh, yeah, Netflix. I don't know. I don't know what Netflix is doing. I don't know what anybody's doing. And But I, I, I'm with you, Zach. This seems like it would be, it, it's golden fruit ready to be picked almost, it seems to us. Yeah. Like, that's, I think that's, I think, like I said, I, I know I'm not a, I'm by no means a fan of Jodorowsky. I admire his type of philosophy mm-hmm. not financial not financial <laughs> philosophy yeah <laughs> but i admire the idea of like let's just see how ambitious it's like let's be as ambitious as we can and we'll curtail it when we have to yeah yeah because again i think the thing like, like the story with like salvador dolly it's like oh like every single time he try- i think about it, you have jodorowsky and salvador dolly in the same room together mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a joke yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> Like I can imagine, you. I would love to see a uh, a web series where it's like Salvador Dali and Jodorowsky sit down and have a conversation together. <laughs> like it's like, I, uh, it's like when InSync and Aerosmith played the Super Bowl together. It's like what? <laughs> exactly. It's like kind of those weird things. Where like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. How did and that even, pairing ever come about? Yeah, and that's and you mentioned a couple of times in here where it's like, oh, every because Dali was such an, like I think they call him an eccentric would be kind. And you have like, like you say you have Jodorowsky coming. Everyone's like, and even Jodorowsky, who's insane. That's I was I was intimidated by this man. Mm-hmm. And I think like, in the whole time that like what was all the things like? There's a couple. We'll insert some clips here. But like he'll say something like, "Oh, Dolly would ask me, do you always shove the trash can in the moonlight?" And it's like, <laughs> well, I can't say that I always do because that would look contrived. So I, I, it's like that's the sort of stuff where you got to give Jodorowsky. Like, he might be crazy. But he's crazy like a fox. Yes, yes. Because then even the whole thing with the money, he's like, oh, uh, Dolly wanted to be paid some astronomical figure. And it's like, well, how long do we need Dolly? We need him for maybe like three minutes in the movie. Well, how long would that take to film? If we expedite it, maybe eight hours. So we'll tell him, we'll pay him $100,000, however it is, like Rob said, it's by the minute, by the hour. And, and Dolly loved that idea. So he'd go around with to all of his cronies and say, I'm the highest paid actor by the minute. Yep. 
that's the sort of stuff that that you I don't know whether that was his idea and he's just taking or somebody else's idea and he's now just taking credit for it. Sure, sure. Whether it's true or not, it's fun. Like that that's there's a cleverness to oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I like your question. Do you put your trash can in the moonlight? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Dolly in the movie or Jodorowsky says he was asked, um, do you find clocks in the sand? I think that oh, was his question. Okay. But but no, that makes me think I have a every like a, a very common thing. If people contact me on the internet that I don't want to talk to, I will always send them one question, and it is how many baby geese do you think exist in the world? So I, I think I have two more questions to add to my repertoire now. Do you always put your trash can in the moonlight? And do you find clocks in sand? <laughs> the, oh, correct an- the correct answer to the baby goose question, if anyone wants to know, is 12. And yes, it's the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It's because I, th- I think I've seen one baby goose in my life, and I've seen a 12th of the world. So, 12. <laughs> There you now go. Getting, <laughs> all right, everybody. You can now contact Rob because he's opened up his port. You can now keep, whether it be mail, text, tweet, <laughs> DM, IM. You can now contact Rob. He can't shut you down anymore. <laughs> Y'all have to think of a new question. No, right on, right on. I, I like what we're saying here, Zach. This is it's it's a conundrum, and I think that's going to be the theme of November. We're going to have different things that we're just baffled by that we don't have good answers to, and I don't think we might, we will ever have good answers to. Maybe. Until it happens, if it does. All right, Jodorowsky said, "We'll tweet to Jodorowsky. We'll get an answer. Write him yeah, a letter." Oh yeah, yeah. We'll um, we'll tweet him. Um, you should probably tweet him first because there's one thing he did in this documentary that solidified to me he is a complete asshole, and I would never enjoy talking to him, and I'd probably just be mean to him. It's one thing. <laughs> there's many things that make you make me think he's just a terrible human being. Um, but there's one scene in the documentary before we get into the actual, I guess. The doom that never was. I gotta point this out. So they're interviewing Jodorowsky. He is saying he's, he starts talking and like middle of the sentence. I think he begins talking about how he goes him and I think O'Bannon or someone else maybe um, maybe Mobius. Sorry, May, him and Mobius go to America to Los Angeles to have a meeting with Trumbull, Doug Trumbull, to get him to do the special oh. effects. And so Jodorowsky begins telling this story, and then he just stops. He stops talking middle of a sentence, and it's so abrupt and jarring that I was like, did the, did the file crash? Like, did my computer crash? Am I not hearing the movie anymore? But no, Jodorowsky stops this interview mid-sentence to, like, make noises at his cat and then pick it up. Okay, so he does this. He just breaks character, air quotes if you want to call it that, to pick up his cat. He goes right back into the story. What the fuck is the story about? But he meets with Doug Trumbull, and Doug Trumbull is answering his phone during the meeting. And this was big enough of a problem that Jodorowsky was like, I cannot work with you. He was a very honored, very important person. He received me. He was interesting. It was a business. Um... Oh my gosh. Hey. Flor. Flor. Hey. Silencio. Yeah. Hello. Um, we went to see Trumbull. But he gives himself so big importance. 
We was speaking, he answered 40 times the telephone. 40 times. Right. He was speaking about so big vanity of himself. He was a big technician, but for me was not an spiritual person. He had nothing to do in the creation of a, of a film who was a prophet. He will make a technical film. No? Do you see the irony in this, Zach? That this motherfucker interrupted his, interrupted his own story about people not paying attention in a meeting? Like, like this baffled me. Like, this is the fucking stupidest shit I think I've ever seen a person do. And I've seen some stupid shit. Did this stand out to you, Zach? Well, okay. I, I, get, I know what you're getting at. But this is a thing that happened in, a, I know, at least two documentaries in this time span. It happened in the Room 237 documentary where in, like, there'll be somebody, like, reciting their nonsense about The Shining. Mm-hmm. And, like, their kid starts crying. Like, you're like, ah, ah, ah. And, you know, like, it gets louder and louder. The person's like, the person will stop. And actually, like, the, the imagery from the movie will freeze. The person's like, oh, do you hear my son? Hold on a sec. I have to go take care of that. And, like, we'll hear yeah. him, like, walk away. That became a cute thing for a lot of documentary filmmakers to do, to make it seem like, oh, it's much more yeah. relaxed. Um, I th- I think that's what they're going for. But that I get that. I, I have no problem with a general interruption to make it seem more relaxed or more personable or anything like that. But not in a story about the negative aspects of interruption. Like, that is mind-blowing to me. Like... Just don't, don't do it. Tell a different story. If the point of the story you're about to say is that people who interrupt you are assholes and you've just interrupted, save face. Fucking don't tell that story. <laughs> I, I guess I don't blame him for that. I, think, I blame him completely. I blame I, him completely. <laughs> I blame the filmmakers of the documentary because it seems like, when, like, it's like any interview, you sit down, especially someone like him, you put down. You probably give him the least amount of restrictions possible, and he probably. He can say, I I think he's a professional in at least some sense, and he probably said, "Do you <laughs> want me to redo this?" And he said, "No, no, it's cute. Let it go." See, um, I think it was. I think it would be the other way around, where the filmmakers were like, "We can't put this scene in this movie because it's so damn contradictory." And Jodorowsky would go, no, I need a hundred extra thousand dollars if you want me to reshoot picking up this cat. Probably not even his cat. <laughs> so I, I i think it's flip sack i think i think it's all jodorowsky's fault so but that that scene stood out to me so much i was like losing my shit like standing up in my apartment <laughs> how angry that made me <laughs> the other thing that got me which which isn't just unique to jodorowsky but i know it's a people have said this to me before um, zach might want to say it's uh, it's a cultural thing where jodorowsky's like i went to go meet pink floyd the fact that it's pink floyd doesn't matter Anybody, anybody's like, I went to go talk to person A and they were eating and it's the fucking most offensive thing in the world to me. Like, get over yourself, asshole. You're there to pitch something. Who gives a fuck if they're eating? If you think somebody can't eat and listen at the same time, what the hell's wrong with you? But like I said, that's not unique to Jodorowsky. I've had people in my own life where they get annoyed when I'm eating and they're not, or they get annoyed when they're talking and I'm eating. It's stupid, stupid, inane bullshit. Like, just get on with your life. But 
you know, Jodorowsky, I don't like him. <laughs> we could go on for hours about all, I, all his that, tiny little mannerisms that I don't like. That one I'll give you because that seems like something he'd be bothered by because he says in the film, like, I am pitching the greatest film in cinematic history. And they're sitting there just yeah. eating the hamburger. They're going to it's going to change the world and they're not paying attention to me. It's like they're fucking it, they are paying attention to you. Like, why? What is this food? Food's in front of me. I can't I have tunnel vision now. Like, get out of here. Yeah, like I said, that, that like Rob said, it's a matter of uh, personal preference. I know my father used to hate it when, like, I, like, he'd be talking at me and I'd be doing something else. He's like, stop what you're doing and listen. And <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Th- there's that type of mentality. And like I said, just Jodorowsky is full of himself. Like, there's no denying that, whether mm-hmm. it be now or then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but going back to, like, the Douglas Trumbull thing, that's an sure. interesting thing because I, I've heard that name how many times just – with with because that's another thing about this film trying to get it made was and this goes back to my background understanding of star wars was there were like today we're like you have you have like ilm industrial light and magic Mm -hmm. weta digital domain all these special effects houses and those are just the more the ones everybody knows there's there's hundreds of them that do the small things here and there yep until star wars there really wasn't any of that like yes some of the Back during the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the studios would have like a special effects department. But when they all kind of proverbially blew up in the mm-hmm. six, late 60s, they were disbanded. Yeah. So my thing is, like, and I know that's why Daniel Bannon was brought on board, was because he was the special, he was going to be the special effects person. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I don't know how he could, like, Star Wars created the infrastructure for things like, or at least gave a template for things like Alien. Yeah. Like Blade Runner, like E.T., four Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, in Lucas, when he did Star Wars, had to basically hire these people one by one. And, had to, and they all had to be instructed on what they were doing. Yeah, and, yeah. And I can't imagine, like, that's part of that. Again, everybody talks about, like, Star Wars and, like, the, ge- the genius of Lucas being like, oh, he thought of, like, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. No, the genius of George Lucas was he thought of all these ideas and figured out how to hire the right people that understood this mm-hmm. and were able to realize it yeah. without, without him having to constantly get involved in fixing it. Exactly. That, that's the genius of somebody who can, who can translate their vision to other people. And I think that might be the ultimate. Di- I think, you know, in a bizarro alternate dimension, George Lucas and Alejandro Jodorowsky are the same person. Yeah, yeah, that I could, I could see for sure. And I think again, in a different universe, one becomes the world-renowned foundation of pop cinema, and the other one's just this guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both, both of them are. I think, I think George Lucas is full of himself. And yet, you look at you look at El Topo and THX eleven thirty eight, and yes, one's a little bit more visually striking than the other, but they're both yeah. weird ass films at the end of the day. Oh yeah, oh definitely. And I think that's kind of, but again, going back to Douglas Trumbull though, is that like, like Jodorowsky goes to him, it's like I didn't like his energy. He wasn't giving my spiritual warrior. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I, I get it. Like obviously, if you want special effects, you have to go to the one guy who knows how to do them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like that's at least I think there's something like that where I can at least respect Jodorowsky because I think even Rob can agree. You like you have an idea for something, you go to people with it, and you just know even though those people are very talented at what they do, they are just going to try to hijack what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why this film didn't get made was for the same reasons why Jodorowsky walked away from Douglas Trumbull 
let's just say for because I know back during the seventies and eighties, Disney was like, "We'll write a check to anybody." Like we just want fresh ideas. <laughs> yeah, we can't we can't keep making Herbie the Love Bug sequels. <laughs> And that's how things like Tron got made. Because like Disney's like, we want something hip and new. Mm-hmm. Anybody who comes through the door who can pitch us something and we like it, we'll go with it. Sure. And who knows if like a 1970s era Disney that has no idea what they're doing wouldn't be just like... Because I know in the book that I read, Joe Dorowski says this would have been rated PG. Oh, okay. He says this was not going to be a... Uh, the Because I know he says the point like he was going to do a thing where it was that they got the... The I don't know my Dune characters. The so and so is going to be castrated, and so the, oh, the yeah, woman yeah. nicks the gives the takes a nick, a nick of him out and gets the blood, mm-hmm. and inserts it into her ovum, and like that though. Don't know how that fits into it. Yeah, <laughs> don't know, but who knows? Like I said, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was written. Pete was was given the PG rating, or no, they tried to get a PG rating mm-hmm. for that. Excuse mm-hmm. me, um, but no. It's interesting. Like, I don't know. Like, like, you know. In a bizarre world, could Disney have made Jodorowsky's Dune? That that that's a good question. Um, that 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 would be a cinemodity, right? <laughs> well, I don't know though, because like you look at some of the weird ass stuff Disney's done, like whether it be like the Black Cauldron, which nobody like. It's funny that that film, even to this day, barely got a DVD release. Never mind Blu-ray and everything else. It's funny that's that's now just getting a Blu-ray release because Disney's releasing all their. Fi- I think it's in Europe. Okay. They're releasing all their animated films like in a box set that has like four hundred discs. Oh wow! I, I think I think it's like it's like a like a house down payment. That's what it cost. <laughs> it better come with a, a fucking free month of their streaming service. <laughs> no, but it comes with the copy of the Black Cauldron on Blu-ray. So you know okay. what? That's close okay. enough. Uh, but I think that's I think that's what it was coming to where it's like you would have had to like what Fox did with Star Wars. You're got to just find the people where George Lucas is at least unassuming. Jordorowski's mm-hmm. the last thing. That's the last yeah. thing he is, is unassuming. Mm-hmm. I, again, and and that's another aspect of it where it's like, how much of this was the financials? And the other half of it was, oh, dear Lord, this man's going to be a nightmare to work with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I would imagine it was more of the nightmare part because he really comes across to me that way. But, of course, like we said, you know, this was him much later in life. We don't know if he's changed much. We might not think he's changed much. But back in the day, he could have just he could have been just incredibly off-putting. But at the same time, you hear all these stories from from like Dan O'Bannon – and Chris Foss, and I don't know about Mobius, you don't see a lot of him in any of these mm-hmm, documentaries. Mm-hmm. But it's like, they all talk about him as if he he basically was like the, um, oh god, he, I, oh, I'm trying to think of the word. Like, was it the Pied Piper? He just, he played, he played the yeah, tune. Yeah, well, I, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, you know, because even everyone's going to have their supporters, you know, we've learned that. With, with the Manson family and, and, and you know, <laughs> Jim Jones and stuff like that. Um, not that I'm saying Jodorowsky's a cult leader, but, you know, th- I'm sure that this documentary has to spin it. Like you said earlier, it, it wasn't going to get made if it was going to be derogatory to him in any way. I don't know, but you think someone like Jodorowsky is somebody who's this, somebody who can intellectually decipher Salvador Dali mm-hmm. would be smart enough to, you know what, I can figure out the studio executives. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe – you know, uh, with the whole thing that we said, you know, where he's like, I don't want to do 90 minutes. I want to do 14 hour, 20 hour movie. Maybe he was just getting in his own way, you know, with his own ambition. 
and the uh, the the studio heads saw that. You know, I'm thinking of your good old uh, what is it, uh, pretzel and salt and chocolate uh, and hamburger example. You know, it's like maybe they saw Jodorowsky that way. Like, hey, we'll give him money, but you know, uh, a month from now he's gonna say, I had all these other great ideas that weren't in my instruction manual. So I need double the money or something like that. Maybe that's how they saw it as a long-term investment. Um, Maybe. Because that's kind of what I get, that, you know, he, when he's creating, he seems like he just creates. He's in creative mode, and, you know, the switch never really turns off. Yeah, I guess so, because I, cause they mentioned the budget being $15 million. Mm-hmm. I went back, and Star Wars, two years later, cost $12 million. Okay. I think it was originally given the budget, I think, of $8 million. I think over time it just it ran up. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. Again, that's the weird thing with this. It's like, could he again? If Star Wars gets made for twelve million, could Jodorowsky have done it for three million more? Could he have done it? I don't think so. I think he it would it would ended up costing a lot more than the three million extra over Star Wars. I mean, that's just my my feeling. You know, I have no empirical evidence of that, but that's what I get from watching this documentary and, and seeing him and the way he chooses to present himself. I don't know. I, I wonder if people like I, that's the thing about this, though, is that we do have a a quasi realization of this because again, a lot of the people got brought over from Alien mm-hmm. or brought over to Alien. So yeah, you have like, yeah. like obviously Ridley Scott is much more disciplined, or at least at the time he was. Now, yeah. now he's he's now he's just a madman that keeps making Alien. I'm gonna make seven more Alien sequels. <laughs> They're all gonna tie into Sigourney Weaver eventually. <laughs> I, uh, we can only hope that one crosses over with one of the Avatar sequels, right? Oh boy! That's <laughs> now that Disney owns all this crap, I guess why not? Uh, but no, but like again, so you do have. And again, like I said, Alien was a not a trouble production, but it was. Trouble, it's like any movie production. You, yeah, you have yeah. millions, one man or a handful of people is in charge of s- spending millions of dollars to bring fantasy to life, mm-hmm. effectively. Yep. And but it worked with Alien. And basically, you had the exact same team in place, minus Jodorowsky. And that's minus, my question. Though. It's like, look, but see, I'm thinking minus Jodorowsky. I'm thinking of the team. Of course, of course, the team is what's going to get that budget set. I would imagine at the start. But once you get into doing things, you know, who's to say that Jodorowsky wasn't going to have to, you know, renegotiate Salvador Dali's pricing or something like that or orson wells was going to need double the amount of wine they thought he was going to need or something like that that's where i'm seeing it because there was no salvador dali in alien there was no none of these you know i just had all these great like mick jagger you know uh, salvador dali orson wells like getting all this stuff i would imagine that would play a big role in how much it would end up costing right yeah i i guess so that's that's a, a different avenue to look at it because because i guess it may be i i, I that's the thing too like a lot of the studio heads from that era are still alive. Mm-hmm. Why not interview them? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Maybe they like, didn't care. <laughs> well, but there should, like I said, with uh, Coppola, yeah, Spielberg, yeah, you're right. There should be a title card saying we reached out to Sid Sheinberg, uh, the mm-hmm. chairman of the board of. Uh, Universal, nineteen seventy something. I, I I know he was around for the seventies. This nineteen eighty yeah. something declined to comment. Something like that. Due diligence. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yep, that's what makes a good documentary. And it seems like they either didn't do it or completely chose to leave it off. But in terms of the audience, they're the same thing to us. I guess. I guess this documentary is supposed to be more of a a love letter. 
Oh, I think I said it before. As soon as the movie okay. started, I was like, uh, I didn't say love letter. Love letter is probably a nicer way to put it. But I, I, as soon as it started, and they were just, here's all these books Jodorowsky's written, or they, at least he has his name on them. I was like, this is going to be a huge ego stroke fest. And it was. Uh, I think of it more as for Jodorowsky, but as we've talked, like you said, you know, it's more of like, maybe better way to put it, a love letter to what this movie could have been, this team, this concept, this consortium of ideas, things like that. Because I know even, like, obviously this movie goes in depth with a couple of things, but, like, even in my book I read, in, in the section of the book I have that talks about this, it's ten pages long. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's 40, 50 pages, and it's like, yeah. oh, this is like a third of the book. And the book gets into more detail at certain crucial points. And this book was out, was published long before the movie was in production. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like, I don't know. Like I said, I, I look at some of the concept art from this, and it's funny. Some, It's very, the concept art is sparse. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, they show you some stuff, but it's, like, the same images. Like, the one, like, I just, so I could have it for uh, reference on my computer, you type in Jodorowsky's Dune, and you get, like, the same three or four images for every, okay like, search result. You get, obviously, the, the I don't even know what to call it. Uh, I remember when I first saw the poster art for this documentary. I didn't know what it was. Like the giant, I guess it's a spaceship, but it has like the uh, camouflage, like multicolor. It looks like a fish. Oh, almost. yeah. I think they, they they refer to it as the pirate spaceship in the documentary. Okay. But yeah, they sh- I, I, I know exactly what you're thinking of. I didn't pull it up on my own end, but they show that picture four or eight times in the documentary. Okay, and there's all, I'm not sure if this is the same one, but the one that's leaking the spice into space. Okay, yeah, I, th- I think that's that one. Oh, I'm, not think- I'm thinking about the cover art. Okay, I'm not sure if Rob knows the poster. There's a poster for this. In the oh, okay, okay. The Blu-ray. Oh, well, well, I mean, regardless, I'm with you. They sh- they reuse those images, even in this documentary. Yeah, and the thing about those, like, as you're looking at a lot of this concept art, and again, and there's not, like, considering this book is so freaking thick, hmm. you don't see a lot of it. And what you do look at, I don't want to say it's incomprehensible, but, like, you look at, again, not to bring this back to Star Wars, but you look at an X-Wing, and yeah. an X-Wing makes sense visually. Mm-hmm. A TIE fighter makes sense visually. Yeah. The Millennium Falcon, not so much. Millennium Falcon takes, you gotta wrap your mind around that for a second. <laughs> but you look at the Jodorowsky, and like I said, I'm gonna reference the one that's leaking the spice. When they were showing that in the documentary, I didn't know what it is I was looking I thought I was looking at a tropical fish. Fair, fair. And I think that's anything too. That he was. I don't blame him because prior to Star Wars, you didn't really have space fantasy aircraft. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Again, I guess the closest thing you would say would be two thousand one, mm-hmm. and that was very much steeped in reality, or at least um, a, a future that was steeped in reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Pan Am space shuttle in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Space Odyssey. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but like I said, that's, that's just another component of this where it's like, how do you, again, we look at it now and we have a hard time grasping it. Can you imagine being in 1975 and you have this eccentric Mexican man come in and you have him come in and he just starts ranting and raving about making a 20 hour movie and paying Salvador Dali hundreds of thousands of dollars by the hour. It's like, I don't care how good his pitch is. It's like, nope. Yeah. Nope. It's like, like I don't care if you, you're giving me the, 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 the answer to life. Yeah, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> I, I, I think, I don't know, though. I, uh, that's where I wish they'd give you a little bit more context as to what his vision was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, that's that was kind of one of the things I thought when the movie began with um, the director, the director of Drive we mentioned. I don't know his name off the top of my head like Zach does, though 
dude with the winding in his name. Uh, yeah. He so the movie starts and he's like, one night I'm having dinner with Jodorowsky and he just says, "Do you want to see Dune?" And he just took me through his story for Dune, and I was like, "Make that the movie, like just have him tell us or something like that. That that it would be great, you know." Well. Because that's another thing with this, too. They say he was going to make a 14... Because he says, I'm making a 14-hour cut. I'm making a 20-hour mm-hmm. cut. Does that mean Nicholas Winding Revan was sitting there for a few days? <laughs> was this like like the supper to end all suppers? It's I like, hope so. He's like, I, he's like, I really got to get back to my family, Alejandro. <laughs> no, you're staying here until <laughs> I finish the third act. <laughs> this this cat... This cat shows up and it's like, oh god, here comes another two-hour intermission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the intermission. It makes me think of. I don't think Zach's ever seen it, but um, uh, David Cross did a TV show called "The Increasingly Poor Decisions of Todd Margaret" for IFC. Um, it's a it's a very intricate show. It's, it's David Cross, like he did all of it almost. But one of the main characters, they have a, a butler. And the butler is played by John Hamm, and for the whole show, he's just the butler, and it's John Hamm. In the last episode of the show, John Hamm like goes to the main character, and he's like, "It's been a pleasure working with you, sir, but I really need to get back to the set of Mad Men." And the guy's like, "God damn it, Ham! We've talked about this," and he like whips him or something. That's what it makes me think of. Where Alejandro Jarowski's like, "You're staying here till we make this movie." God damn it! <laughs> oh man, that's oh funny. my lord, that's good. Oh boy. Uh- no, another question I have though is that, like, I guess this would be the the producing of this documentary. Mm-hmm. Do they have to? I, okay, this is a weird one. I don't know, but would they have to license? Because obviously, somebody has the film rights to Dune. Yeah, yeah. Would they have to license anything to use? Because I know a couple times they like, one of the good parts of this is that they actually do like like um not reenactments, not the right word, but they do they do do like animation sequences. Of certain parts of this, yeah, yeah, of the what exists in that instruction manual. It's funny, even in the book I was mentioning, they um, they mentioned that Herbert was never, never, he never understood the success of Dune. Yeah, did you ever hear that? I have, I have uh, read that. Um, I don't know if Zach's is familiar with something called the Witcher series, which is a series of books from a, originally a Polish author. They were originally written in Polish. Um, the books never did that well. And the Witcher idea uh, basically was uh, purchased from the author to make a series of video games. And the video games are now incredibly successful. And the guy who wrote the books, who when he did this licensing, I guess, he was like, I just want a lump sum. Like, I don't want part of your company. I want a lump sum of money because you're not going to be successful. Then they got successful. And now he's like, oh, I'm an idiot. I need more money. And in that dealing, a lot of people have brought up uh, Frank Herbert and Dune, and that's exactly, I think, where I've heard what you said, that Dune has kind of been unaware of this, uh, sorry, Herbert has been unaware of the success of Dune, um, where kind of this author of the Witcher series, he was unaware of the success until he found out about it and started demanding more money. So yeah, I, I have I have heard that, and I've heard it in recent times, it's come up again. Okay. Obviously, Dune's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Because they say it was an immediate success, the novel. And yeah, I he, think so. In 60, it was 65, I believe, was when the novel came out. And yeah, yeah, I think it was acclaimed pretty much right off the bat. Yeah, his whole thing was like, okay, great. 
but <laughs> it's there. It's there. I did it. Time to move on. Yeah. And he was always kind of fascinated that people always kind of brought it, brought it back. It was like, he was like, uh, like I said, I think he was happy to make money off of it, but it was just kind yeah. of like, I've been there, done that. But no, he, like I said, he's, he's referenced a couple of times in that passage. And mm-hmm. he's like, he makes like, like one of his final comments is, um, they try, like Hollywood tried making, tried adapting my, my book and they all failed. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy! So Rob, where do we take this from here? We've kind of pinballed all over the map. I know. Yeah, we've talked a lot about all these different things, and I think at the start we said that we were going to talk about the movie that never was. I think we've done everything but that. <laughs> I think I think I think we've illustrated what this movie because yeah, what, yeah. we've illustrated what this if this did exist. I think a lot of it is too that we like where we'll get into the next coming weeks, whether it be the death of Superman Lives mm-hmm. or Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah, or, or Tangerine uh, Reef. Tangerine Reef. <laughs> Thanks Killing. Um, th- the real November titles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they at least, or even Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. All those other ones, there is at least some concrete idea of what these things would have looked like. Yes. I think this is the hardest of any probably not uh, unmade film to really wrap your mind around. You know, and I would say because of that reason, because it is so uh, abstract, you know, it's just this book of art almost. And it had a lot of people who had ideas to bring it together, but since it's so abstract, more so than the other ones we usually talk about, that leaves a lot to the imagination. And maybe that's why this has become so popular, because since there's no concrete connection to it, uh, or really the only thing is, you know, Jodorowsky's mind and this book that you can barely find... It leaves some so much up to the imagination that people are more willing to latch onto it and like it because they can envision it as their own thing. Just a, just an idea. Oh, definitely. Because I remember when I was in college, I was asked about this by the cinema professors, and I'm like, it's the, they're like, what do you know about Jodorowsky's dude? Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's the greatest film that's never been made. Like that's that's just, sure. it's funny. That's the moniker. Yeah, that's, that that's how it's referred to. That if you like, if you tell any uh, film aficionado what's the greatest film that was never made. If they don't say Jodorowsky's doing it's definitely in the top three. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yep, for sure. Okay, so I guess then um, hard. I'm finding it hard to think of things to like talk about with the movie because the movie, uh, the, the movie that never was. Because we do get in the documentary some ideas of scenes like the opening long shot through the galaxy, and we get the idea of the ending, which is like just it's just Spartacus, right? Isn't that the ending that they pitch where he's like Paul Atreides is going to die? But then everybody's going to stand up and say, I am Paul Atreides. And I was like, isn't that the ending of Spartacus? But whatever. Um, So, you know, we have some ideas of the movie, but I'm finding it hard to really talk about it, you know, because, yes, we got these scenes, but then he's saying he wants it to be 14 hours long. So it's like we know less than like a tenth of a percent of what this movie could be other than who would be acting in it. And then you think about that, and it's like, oh, Salvador Dali. That would be amazing to see him in a movie. But he's going to be on screen for five minutes. Like, like out of what? Out of 14 hours? Like what, like, what is the vision? And I think this goes back to the point you said, Zach, where that's what we don't really have the greatest sense of. I think the more and more we discuss this, the more I think about it. I think the 14, 20-hour thing was I think they were trying to contain him 
And his first response to that is, if you're not going to let me have two ah. hours, I'm going to try like, – like, two hours, I'm going to make 14. It's the idea if you're going to try putting me in a box, I'm just going to blow all the walls down. You're, that's a good point. It's the human condition of even if uh, even if somebody doesn't want to do something, when you tell them no, they're more likely to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is. Because again, I, I that's the weird part of this, where it's like you think again. I think it comes down to Michel Sidu. He should have sat there, been like, "We try." Even though I respect him as an artist, we tried mm-hmm. to rein him in every chance we got. Not yeah. on his artistic vision or his, I guess, the uh, execution of it, but just in a practical sense, we had to reel him in. Yeah, contain his eccentricity, absolutely. Bingo, yes, that's the correct phrase to use. And I think that's the weird thing, though, because it's like, there is so little information on this. Yeah, You do have a holy grail that exists. Why, again, maybe maybe they should have done a 20-hour documentary on this. It's yeah. <laughs> like, why contain this to just 90 minutes? Mm-hmm. Or, or partition it, and you have one part that's the love letter, you have not dual documentaries, but you have two different vantage points in the documentary where one's the love letter and one's the real world, real world perspective. Okay. Yeah, where it's, or, yeah. or the grounded perspective where it's like, I think at, I think back when this came out, red letter media did a review of it. Oh, okay. And I think Mike was like, like kind of like what we've been saying all along where it's like, they're, they're talking about making this movie and Joe Dorowski just keeps rambling about all these things. And he goes, I really wish they had a perspective from like a like a producer that was like, we, we, we can't afford to make 20 hours. Like, yeah. how, how can we afford to make that? And like, I think that's what this film needs. This film needs a grounded perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it seems like it has a much more lifted, embellished perspective because they spend so much time on, on Joe Dorowski and his followers, for sure. Yeah, I think I wonder why nobody has tried. Like, I, I don't know for for a film that most cinephiles know about. Mm-hmm. Like, there, like there's countless movies. Like, even going through the the little book, I'll go through the index. Like most of these, oh, let's see how many Rob knows because even I don't recognize a lot of these. Alfred Bester's The Stars, My Destination. <laughs> Never heard of that. <laughs> you have the unmanifested destiny of Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. Uh, I never heard of that. I know Arthur C. Clarke, though. <laughs> is that okay. like a, is that like a, a, a point one of a point? <laughs> I, gu- I guess. Like I said, am I, I winning? Am I winning, Zach? <laughs> Did I ever tell you that? Remember that movie that came out called um, with Ansel Elgort, uh, this this Default in My Stars. Do you, do you oh, remember that? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that name for sure. All right. The, 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 oh yeah, that was the Dying Kids Cancer movie. I kept telling you about. Yeah, yeah. When that movie, I remember because that was like a, a book for like teenagers. Oh sure, sure. I didn't know. I didn't know that when the movie was like being talked about, mm-hmm. and so I remember reading online like all the stuff called like Default in My Stars. I thought it was the book The Stars My Destination. I'm like, oh, good <laughs> for them. They're finally making that movie after like 40 years. Good for nice. them. Nice. <laughs> but uh, no, okay, so you have that. You have Philip Kaufman's Star Trek Planet of the Titans. I was really hoping you were going to say Star Trek Planet of the Apes. <laughs> well, that'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, but no, I've never heard, never heard of that one. I've heard of Philip Kaufman, of course. Steven Spielberg's Night Skies. I have not heard of that, but I'm guessing is that the one you mentioned before, which was like the alien invasion movie? Yeah, that's okay. the one. I think that's, uh, if you know your. Um, UFO history. It's like about the family, like in the house in Kentucky, and they like fight off the aliens throughout the whole night. Like the police come out halfway through. The police are like, 
What the hell's happening here? Oh, was that on an Unsolved Mysteries that you I watched? Because that seems familiar, like people I, holding I, down it, a house with it's aliens. A, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a mystery at the museum segment. Okay, that. that might yeah, that might be where I've I've seen it. Then okay, it's based on that basically. Okay, okay. Um, right. You have David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket. Well, that that one I know. You have uh, James Cameron's Spider Man. Oh, I don't think I knew about that. Oh, you don't know about that? Most people, no. that that's what most people know about. Is it going to be? Was James Cameron planning on directing and playing Spider Man? If you want, okay, anybody listening to this, I, you have to go looking for it. It's, it's on YouTube. People have done some pretty cool, like, retrospective lines. Mm-hmm. James Cameron was going to make, like, an R-rated, like, Spider-Man movie. Okay. Like, it was going to be weird. Ooh. Like, it was going to be, like, insanely weird. And certain, <laughs> like, certain aspects, like, got brought over into the Raimi movies. Sure. But, like, I think at one point, something, I don't know, something happens where something really weirdly sexual happens between Peter and MJ. Okay. I forget what it is, but it's really weird. Okay. <laughs> but you have I'll have to look it up. Yeah, so you have that. You have like the billion dollar man, like when they try to get uh they originally tried to make the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. Island Doctor Moreau, The Outer Limits TV show, and the infamous one, John Carter of Mars, which mm-hmm. they tried making for how many years until Disney eventually did it and just crapped the bed. Um <laughs> again that that John Carter is a cinemati. We'll get to that at some point. Okay, okay, but yeah, it's like that's that's what it comes down to, though. Is that a lot of these movies or these these ones that nobody knows about. There's only a handful of these films that were never made that are put on a pedestal. Yeah, yeah, because this we, is one of them. We have to acknowledge that you know, it, like the the amount of movies that don't get made is certainly larger than the amount of movies that are made. So it's interesting that only a handful, like Zach said, get such notoriety. Yeah, and that's and that's what I think is the maybe what makes this a cinemati, or the maybe the I think the other ones aren't because it's like oh Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau, mm-hmm. it's like come on, there's always going to be interpretations of that story. Yeah, yeah, you're you're never going to escape that. That's just one of those stories that just captured the 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 imaginations of many. Yep. Fantastic Four. It's funny, ironically, like not to jump ahead too far, but like <laughs> to this day, no one's gotten that right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Especially, that's funny considering the fact that we live in the the superhero renaissance or, or boom. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's, even, the, that's the one I'm most upset about because Silver Surfer is like one of my favorite superheroes, and they just did it so shittily with the Fantastic Four movie. And I'm bummed. <laughs> That's actually one of the chapters in that book is they were trying to make a Silver Surfer standalone movie back during the '90s. I love Silver Surfer. I've read it. I'm, I, I think I'm just screwed with my my two favorite superheroes are pretty much Green Lantern and Silver Surfer, and they and they can't do that right. <laughs> no. Oh boy, but yeah, I think I think like Rob said, we do have a very very limited idea of what this film would have looked like. Yeah. But considering what little idea we have. I do think if it came out, again, we have no idea. Again, he d- I think the one thing that gives this thing away is that Jodorowsky does say that this had to be PG. Mm-hmm. This had to be fa- this had to be family family accessible. Yeah, and I think if he was, I think it's a lot of people. Like, if he, a lot of people look at THX eleven thirty eight and are like, "This is the guy that sat." I remember when I watched <laughs> that in you know, college, and like, it's hard to believe that the guy who made this would later go on and give us Jar Jar Binks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's really hard to see. Even though there's many years between those two films, it's just the whole idea that like, and you watch American Graffiti, which is a that's another one where you can't believe George Lucas directed the comedy. 
Yep. I, that, I, most people were more blown away by that once you show them, like, oh my God, Lucas actually made a comedy? <laughs> and he had a funny bone in his body. And I think if this film, I think the biggest mystery of this film was if it did come out, I think it would have, it would have found an audience. Mm-hmm. My question is, would a 19, mid-1970s audience would have appreciated this the same way they would have appreciated something like Star Wars? I think yeah. that's the question as to whether this is a cinemati. Would audiences of the mid-70s, and not just the hippie counterculture, I mean mass, the, the what's it called, the, the hegemony? That really, the, the sure. masses, would they have glommed onto this? That's, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And... Um... I don't know, because, of course, uh, they didn't latch on to David Lynch's Dune, but that, of course, had its own different slew of problems. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, would, uh, that, would a sci-fi movie of this expansive nature fallen into that timeline? Not sure. Not sure. What, would people have liked to see Orson Welles floating around? Not sure. Not sure. Well, I know I will. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that's really what I want to see. That because the one part of the documentary of Dune that made me laugh out loud was when <laughs> they're interviewing Jodorowsky and he's basically like Baron Harkonnen is the fattest, stupidest motherfucker. Like he's so fat and he's the biggest fat piece of shit. So I think who plays it? Orson Welles. And it was it's like the it's like the most insulting sentence to Orson Welles ever. And it's so funny. Baron Harkonnen is a big, big monster who have anti-gravitational implant and he's in the air all the time because he's too, too, too heavy. Huh? Orson Welles. So just imagining what he would have done with him in that, in that role, I would, uh, that's what I want to see, like you said. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That's the, yeah. Like, uh, oh, Jordorowski. So yeah, we, should have, I mean, we should have reached we, out to him for this. We could have gotten him on here. <laughs> Oh God! I, I would have just had to hang up halfway through it and been like texted Zach and been like, I can't do it. I'm gonna yell at him too much if, if I stay on the line. <laughs> oh dear! But no, no I think yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I think the final. I think this might be an interesting. Uh, in November, we might not have the usual. Is this a cinemati? Yes or no? That's it what might, I'm thinking. It seems like November is going to have different rules than we're used to. I think so because I think the issue with this movie is because it didn't doesn't exist. It would have been. Could Jodorowsky's Dune, the movie, mm-hmm. take in the place of Star Wars in, in pop culture? Yeah, yeah. And if, if yes, if so, then no, it's not a cinematic because it would have been glommed onto by the masses. Yeah. But if it was rejected, then it would have been another, I think it would have been one of the earliest box office bombs of all time. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, that's fair. I, th- I think that's the best way I can... Uh, what's the word? Give our cinematis question. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, it's like a, a conditional statement. We have to, you know, there's there's caveats to these things because it's all speculation, and it it's a weird type of hindsight speculation. <laughs> exactly. That's see, we're breaking new ground again. That's twice in an episode. Nice. I like it. I like it. And I have to agree with you with exactly what you said. I think that this how this movie would play as a cinematity or a late night movie would come down to how it plays out in the annals of history and how it would relate to Star Wars and things like that. All the movies we've come to know and love and accept as the building blocks to get to where we are today. It, would, it definitely would have changed that completely, but that's not enough to say it's a cinemodity because, of course, you know, 
you change one thing in anything, it changes everything completely in the long run. So, so yeah, I, I think that it, it's just conditional. It's how this would have played out back in the day. Oh boy! So, but I will we- I will say that this documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune, I I don't think I'm going to show this to as a late night movie unless for some reason I'm hanging out with someone who, I don't know, maybe we get drunk and we just want to be angry and we can get angry at somebody. But there's better things to get angry about than this documentary. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is not, out of all the... Um, I think this this definitely has improved with age. Mm-hmm. More so because there's really... It's funny, this came out four years ago and no one's really done anything to uh, build upon it. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, like again, it's like, nobody, like, Jodorowsky's still alive. Somebody just go talk to him. <laughs> like, so, like, please, this man's not going to live that much longer. It's like, or, or it's like, just get as much, like, even though he's an a-hole, get, his, get him to say as much stuff as humanly possible in the can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you should get some serious people to do it. I would be okay with doing it. But no, no, Zach, if we had an interview with Jodorowsky, I'd be eating the entire goddamn time. I would never stop eating. I'd, ha- I'd have one of those hats that you could put drinks in. And so even even when I wasn't chewing, I'd be able to be sipping something. Just to, just to speak like, fuck you, man. Like, get the fuck out of here. That's nonsense that you care about shit like that. Would you be eating hamburgers? Um, I'd, Yeah, most likely. Okay, good. I'd, I'd probably, for the meeting, I'd like hire someone to be a butler that would come in and out of the room every five minutes to bring me new food. <laughs> like just push it <laughs> okay so so yeah so that that's what i i agree with you we should get more out of him he, he is an eccentric artist which i think i of course you know i appreciate art and artistry but i don't want to work with him <laughs> i i, I think should. that explains why this movie doesn't exist quite well yeah <laughs> yeah we have respect for him but i don't want to work with him yeah it's like the whole uh of you know the musical, uh, I'm thinking of David Byrne, lead singer of the Talking Heads. It was like he's he's a he's a great dude. He has a, a a vision for music that no one had ever had before. But he is terrible person to work with because he sees you as property. So you know it happens in the artist world. So I, I think we do have to talk about. Well, I I don't have any snack suggestions. I think we need to talk about how this movie um, will impact the Cinemodities restaurant, right? I like to. Okay, I have an idea, but it's not a snack. Yeah, that, uh, that's what I'm saying too. I don't. I have ideas for the restaurant. They're not. They're not snacks either. <laughs> so this is my idea. It's not a snack or yeah. food, but much like how we have the Rob and Zach characters that dress up as like waiters and like mm-hmm. go around and, like give you like different condiments. There's a dress. There's like a like, the same kind of like caricature version of us, but it's Jodorowsky. It's only one of him though. Oh, okay, he goes okay. around and he yells at you for eating while you're trying to eat. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. That's great. He's just going to get angry at you. Like you, you expect that this person's coming up to your table to ask you the same question every waiter or waitress asks you. Do you need anything? Is everything okay? But no, he's just going to go up to the table and berate you for eating. <laughs> exactly. I love it. That's great. That's a great idea, Zach. So... Um, we'll have to add that to the order list of costumes when we contact the um, Casper Kelly, the uh, yes. uh, two books guy. So we're going to have to give him a third costume to create. Okay, okay. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I accept that that change. <laughs> so I was thinking that um, very much like in Monstober when we talked about Mandy, I think one of the brief ideas that I pitched was, you know, we'd have an event 
at the Cinemodities restaurant where maybe once a month or, or maybe even more sparse than that. We, I think, I, I'm pretty sure in the Mandy episode I said we were going to have it so you could come into the restaurant and you could watch Nicolas Cage try and eat something with his giant axe. <laughs> so I, I say you have an event, we have an event at Cinemodities where you can come in and you can watch Orson, El, Orson Welles eat a <gasps> Because, like, with six bottles of wine and all those steaks and all the shit, because he was known for eating, you know, that I think that would be great. They put that event on. You can come see Orson Welles, you know, and you can buy him a bottle of wine if you want, you know, buy him another steak, and he's just going to inhale it all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like the idea. Is it the real Orson? Like, do we, like, conjure his spirit, or is it just, like, an actor? He, uh, he, he's going to be a deadite, I would imagine. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I like that even more, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, so we're going to have events at our restaurants. That's what we're saying, for sure. Oh, man. And maybe if we do, like, a Hard Rock, Cafe, Hard Rock Cafe type of deal, if we ever got, like, a copy of the Dune instruction book, we could put it on display in one of our, you know, flagship restaurants or something like Ooh. that. Okay, like, again, like the uh, Planet Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, Planet Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of the Hard Rock Cafe when they do all the guitars of musicians and stuff like that. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we could... I'm sure that we could go back and listen to a bunch of our episodes on Cinemodities and find other items to have in a little museum of Cinemodities, you know? I, I like to imagine for the Cinemodities restaurant, our, um, not artifact, but prop would have from this movie, it would be the dune from Jordorowski's dune, it's just a pile of sand. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Just say random sand, you know, from anywhere. There's like shards of glass in it or something. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, um, wasn't it the Simpsons joke where it's like they're in like Plant Hollywood? Welcome to Planet Springfield, the restaurant owned by me, Chuck Norris, Johnny Carson's third wife, and the Russian Mafia. Each planet Springfield is filled with priceless Hollywood goo-gaws. <gasps> there's the coffee mug from Heartbeats. And there's the cane from Citizen Kane. Wait a minute. There was no cane in Citizen Kane. And there's that awful script from the cable guy. Let me see. Stupid script. Nearly wrecked Jim Carrey's career. You next god. I'm gonna get... What? Yeah. It's like, wait a second. The dune a from it's the dune from Jodorowsky's Dune. You realize there's no sand in Jodorowsky's Dune. <laughs> okay, yeah, I dig that. I dig that. That's a good one. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Okay, right on, right on. Good, we got some uh, improvements to make to the restaurant. Good, as we should. You know, we're always keeping our investors happy. Yes. Oh, uh, well, burning the place down or erasing it from existence. If there, if there is nothing you else uh, you have to say else about Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune, how it relates to our restaurant, well, is if there's nothing else, then are we? How do we end November? That's a good question, right? Because we yeah, have that's like, interesting. We have like no music from this nonsense. No music because, that stood out to me, at least. Well, technically, there's Pink Floyd. There's some Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah, you know, but I, I would say it's, it's all background music to the documentary, you know? Like, there wasn't an intro theme that stood out to me that I'd say, oh, we can reverse that, you know? No. So what do you think? What do you think, Zach? What's your idea? The Gremlins theme song? No, Or no. the Gremlins 2 theme song? After... 
<laughs> I like. We should play the Gremlins theme song backwards in reverse. <laughs> but after Monstober, I think we got rid of all the Gremlins in the podcast. Okay, they, fought, think- they moved on to bigger and better things. They're no longer inhabiting the Cinemodies podcast. Yeah, they're in old man, old men's closets eating tenants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we should go back. We haven't done this in a while. I think we should play the Cinemodies intro in reverse. Oh my god, I completely forgot that we even had that as an option. It's been so long. <laughs> We're going to continue November next week uh, uh, with, I believe, Death of Superman Lives. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, and so November is getting in full swing. we got to work out the details. we got new rules in November. Oh boy, what are we doing to ourselves? Yeah, I guess I guess that's it. Uh, maybe the other disclaimer we should say, you know, everyone was harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> I like that disclaimer, you know, because we talked about animals and stuff. Everybody was harmed. We didn't discriminate. <laughs> no, dear. You November, got anything else, Zach? Nope. As we press on to November, I look forward to discussing such things as Tangerine Reef and Thanksgiving. Oh, boy.